past week, we celebrated one of the most monumental days in the history of the world. In fact, it changed the course of time as we know it. And that we came here last week, and we came here because of Easter. Now, with Easter, there's a couple events that we really need to look at. And with that, there's a question that we all need to ask ourselves. The first is we look at the cross. And so we see that Jesus came, that he took the cross at a place called Golgotha, known as the skull, a place where I have seen and several here have also seen as well. And it literally looks like a skull in the side of the hill right outside the streets of Jerusalem. Right next to it, there is a garden. If you read the passage, it talks about uh, the, the tomb being in a garden and excavated right next to Golgotha is a garden where they found an empty tomb. And there's where most believe that Jesus was buried, but what we have to conclude is, is he still there? Because the thing is, is if we truly believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we truly believe that those events change, then all of a sudden something happens in our life where we are totally transformed and we begin to live a life that is different. And so today as we look at the Easter holiday, as we look at the, the monumental moment that happened on Easter, 2,000 years plus ago, we face ourselves with this same dilemma. And the question is what Jesus asked his closest followers when he took them outside of the city limits of Jerusalem. And he looked them in the eye and he asked, who do people say that I am? But then he made it more personal, and this is where we have to lie today. Who do you say that I am? Because we have to come to the account of whether we believe that Jesus is who he says he is. So today, if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Matthew chapter 16. That's where we're going to be for the majority of the service. We'll be reading in verses 13 through 16. And so I'll give you a second to get there. Um, so it's the first book of the New Testament. What Jesus did in this passage, just to give you a little background, is he took his disciples outside of the city limits. Now, this sets a good example for us because it's real easy for us to come to church and really say, you know what, yeah, Jesus is God. We can come here and whether we believe the words that we sing, we just sang Jesus Messiah. You read them, you either uh, sang them, you either uh, reacted in a way that was a way of worship to God corporately as we came here. And so we come to church and it's really easy to dress up, to look around, to look nice and to bring on that happy face. But the reality is this, most of you come here for an hour a week. Most of you come here for an hour a week. Others of you are here for probably, if you come to uh, the student ministry, you're here for probably another, what, two hours. If you come to Bible study, you add that in there. So roughly, if you're involved in the church community, to be here on campus together corporately or in a small group, you are probably um, diving into the word corporately about four hours a week, roughly, four hours a week. Now, here's the thing. Most of us spend more time watching TV than we do uh, coming here. Most of us spend more, more time, more than four hours watching TV a week. I mean, that, I, I think that's an honest uh, thing. Most sporting events last between two and a half to three hours. If you watch a football game, it goes into overtime. That might be your four hours right there. So if you look at it, you realize this, that the majority of our time is not spent here together. So it's real easy to come here and to put on a face. It's real easy to come here and to act a certain way. But it's a lot harder to go away outside these walls into an area where nobody else is living the same way that you are trying to live 
and continue to live that way. So Jesus, in essence, what he did was he took them into a place called Caesarea Philippi. There they worshipped the god Pan. There it was known for its pagan worship. There are many different acts of paganism in that area. Paganism is something that is very much prevalent today in our own society. If we really wanted to get into that, we can, but I'm not going to go there. But so, so what Jesus did is he took them into that area, and that is where he asked the question, who do you say that I am? So really the question in context is, outside of these walls, who do we really believe that Jesus is? Outside of these walls in our work, in our school, the places where we are involved in our home, out of the golf course, the sports that we're involved in, do our lives demonstrate that we believe Jesus is the Messiah? Do our lives really reveal what we truly believe? And I, I, I think so. I think so. And as we continue to go on in the scripture here, it will show us that as well. So if you have your Bibles, we'll start reading in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16. Jesus said, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus looked at them, he said these words, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Listen to how Simon Peter responded. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When we look at this passage, the first thing that we really need to look at is that Jesus stands out. There is something different about Jesus because of the way that others were describing him. So what we have to do is we have to place Jesus into a category where only he rests. And so Jesus is here away from everyone else. The Bible says that he is holy. The word holy means to be set apart. So that means that Jesus is set apart from all else. And so we look here and we see that there is something different about Jesus. Now when we read through the gospel, some of the things that we realize about Jesus is one, that he controlled nature. He told the storm to stop and it stopped. Another thing we see is that he healed people. He healed a man with leprosy. And then the other thing that we see is that he controls death. As he raised a girl from the dead, as he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, we see that Jesus controls death. And so what we look at when we see Jesus is obviously there's something different about this guy. And so we all have to come to that conclusion, okay, there's something different about him. So I think we can all agree with that. There's something different about Jesus. But when we look at who he was being compared to, it wasn't like Jesus was being compared to just the regular old guys. You know, I mean, when, when Bryce Harper came up playing for the Nationals, I mean, he was being compared to, like, Mickey Mantle and some of the greatest baseball players of all time. So what we realized is, okay, there's, some, there's an expectation from this kid that is different than the rest. LeBron James is being compared to, we all know, Michael Jordan, who is still the greatest, even if he is a jerk. All right, so, but what we see with Jesus is he was being compared to some of the cream of the crop. I mean, he was the Hall of Fame of people. And so what I want us to do is to look at the people which he's being referred to. And the first one's John the Baptist. So John the Baptist and Jesus, they're actually related, and so they were living around the same time. Now, John the Baptist, where was his home? He was in the wilderness, as you know about Jesus. Jesus didn't have a home as well, so Jesus was a, a well, he grew up in a home, but his ministry, he was living in homes as he went to minister to the different areas where he was. And so his purpose, John the Baptist's purpose, was to prepare the way. Who was he preparing the way for? He was preparing the way for Jesus. 
So some, uh, John the Baptist had followers. Some might have thought he was the Messiah, but he made it very clear that he was not and that the coming Messiah was Jesus. And so some of the reasons why people would have compared them is this one that they're prophesied about. I mean, how many people are prophesied about? In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, in Malachi 3, 1, uh, you see how John the Baptist was prophesied about before he was even a person or in existence. Another one is this, and this is pretty cool because not many of us get this, and I would go ahead and venture to say no one in this room has had this happen in their life. Had an angel come and announce their birth, all right? So John the Baptist and Jesus had an angel come and announce their birth. That's crazy, and that's really cool. And so they also had a beef with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So as you look at that, you can see how people would look at John the Baptist, who is around, and think, okay, well, Jesus is like him, or Jesus could be him. Another one we see in the passage is Elijah. Elijah's name means Yahweh is God. Now, one thing that we can look at about Elijah is Elijah was like a man among men. I mean, this dude was a bad mamma jamma. I mean, he was cool. I love reading Elijah. If you want to read more about him, go to 1 Kings chapter 17, and you can read through 2 Kings chapter 2. But some of the comparisons between Elijah and Jesus would be one that Elijah prayed and a child came back to life. Elijah prayed and a meal was multiplied. Another thing with Elijah was that he, he communicated with God, and many believed that uh, Elijah would come again, and so what they did is they saw Jesus in the great things that he did, and they knew what Elijah had done, and so they just assumed it was Elijah coming back. The same takes place for Jeremiah. So Jeremiah, his name means Yahweh founds, or, or whom Yahweh cast forth. And so Jeremiah, I love this comparison because Jeremiah had a heart for Jerusalem. As you know, Jesus said that he wept over Jerusalem. I believe as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he looked over and he saw the city of Jerusalem, he knew he was going to die for them and the rest of the world. Jesus had a great compassion for those that he created. He had a great compassion for his home. He had a great compassion for Jerusalem. And so did Jeremiah. Listen to what it says. It says, because Jeremiah so loved Jerusalem and so aligned himself with the purpose of God, there arose the tradition that Jeremiah would be raised from the dead. So what people thought was because he had such a love for Jerusalem that he was going to come back from the dead. And so a lot of people, uh, they saw Jesus and they thought that it was Jeremiah, when in fact it is not. So what we see is that, okay, there's obviously these great comparisons, but here's the thing. These people served God. When those great uh, miracles took place in the lives of those that Jesus was being compared to, they prayed and it happened. When Jesus performed miracles, he said, and it was done. So what we see is, yes, Jesus is compared to these great men, but that Jesus is greater than these great men. And so we have to look at Jesus and realize he stands out. And so we all have to come together and realize, okay, there is something different about Jesus. But the other thing that we look at when we see him and we look at this passage is, one, we have to really consider the fact that Jesus is God. So we all have to come together and look at how great he is, the things that he has done, and we have to really conclude in our hearts, okay, there's a chance that this guy Jesus is actually God. Listen to what it says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? 
That phrase, son of man, we're going to come back to it, but it's interesting that Jesus reveals who he is even in the question. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Listen to what Simon said again. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So what we see is that obviously Peter knew there was something different, but Peter declared that this difference was the fact that Jesus was not only human, that he is God. That phrase, son of man, is mentioned 78 times by Jesus in the New Testament alone. That phrase is a phrase that the people in that time period would have known. In fact, one thing that we can take from the, uh, the Jewish culture, one thing that they did is they knew their Bible. They knew the Old Testament. I can say, um, oh, say can you see, and you will say, the Star Spangled Banner. All right, so we have different things that we know here because of where we were grown, where, where, how we grew up in our culture, in our society. What they knew in their culture, in their society was this. Now, they didn't know the New Testament. That had not been written yet, but what they knew was the Old Testament. And so when Elijah was mentioned, when Jeremiah was mentioned, they knew immediately who they were talking about. I can talk about George Washington. We know who that is. I can talk about Abraham Lincoln. We know who that is. They are people who are ingrained in our society, and as a part of our culture, we have that understanding. This is how the people knew the Bible. They knew it inside and out. They knew it because it was a part of their life, yet at the same time, they were very blind by the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. So we look at this passage, and we see that there's something great about Jesus, and we need to examine two things, one, and we have to consider this because this is very important as we look at who Jesus is. The first thing is, one, he is human. So we have to look and consider that Jesus is very much human. Now, why is it important that he is human? Listen to what Romans 8.3 says. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. The only way the price could be paid for the penalty of our sin was to have someone who was human pay, pay the price for humanity. It had to be equal. It had to be equal to, but it also had to be greater than. And so that is why Jesus had to be very much human, and we can see that. So it says he came and he took on our sins. He became one of us. Now, the Bible also says that he never sinned. But what he did was when he went to the cross, he took it so that he could defeat that sin. And this is something in Hebrews 4, 15, and I'm going to read, that I really want to kind of just focus in on for a little bit. So I'm going to read that right now. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, listen to this, yet without sin. This passage right here is a good explanation of how we need to look at our God. We see that he came and he bore the sin on the cross, but he did not sin. He was perfect. The Bible tells us that he is perfect. But what we also see is that with perfection comes great power, and with great power we have to assume that the person is God. Now, here's the greatest part about that passage. is that our God will not forsake us is that our God will not leave us. And here's something that I think many uh, people communicate wrong, and that is this. They think that when you become a follower of Christ, that all of a sudden the life is happy-go-lucky and all your problems are going to be thrown away. Let me tell you that that is the biggest lie you are ever going to hear. 
You're going to have problems as long as we are here on this earth. I will guarantee that because I experienced them as well. But what we see in this passage is that we don't have to endure these hardships. We don't have to endure these problems and these issues that arise in our life alone. The Bible says that we have a personal God. He is not a God that we need to try to earn his favor. He already favors us, and he wants to be there right beside us. When I was in high school, I had a coach who was an ex-Marine. All right, this guy was a crazy dude. One day, one of the guys on our team was late for basketball practice, and so he made us do military push-ups for an hour and 45 minutes, and then to take a break, we did jumping jacks. That was our punishment for that guy being late. Now, this guy was tough, but one thing that I did admire about him was this. One of the least favorite things about sports is conditioning. I think we can all agree about that. It's conditioning but it makes you stronger. Now, here's the thing, what my coach did is when we would run suicides at the end of practice, he was always right beside us. When he would work us to death, he was always right beside us. And what that let me know is that he was going to be there to push us through. Though we had to go through it, he never left us. Now, my coach is not God, but he gave me a good illustration of how our God is. And how he will never leave us and he will always be there right beside us. But for our God to be able to, to take our sin shows us that not only is he human, but there has to be something more about him. And so we have to come to the declaration that not only is he human, but he is also very much God. Listen to what Jesus said when he was put on trial. These words, he said, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man, there's that phrase again, Son of Man, sitting on the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The reason why they understood this phrase, Son of Man, and one of the things that it shows us is it shows God's great power. All right, Why would somebody refer to himself as one who is seated on the right hand of the Father, one who has great power, great dominion, if it were not true? If that were the case, then he would be considered a liar, but Jesus was not going to lie. And the people would understand that phrase because it came directly from Daniel chapter 7. Listen to what the scripture says. It says, And behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. If Jesus is just God, then this could not happen. What we see in this passage is that he was given dominion. He was given glory. He was given a kingdom. This signifies power. This signifies greatness. And no human can have an everlasting kingdom because no human is everlasting. One day we will all perish. One day we will all pass away. One day we will cease, cease to breathe life here on this earth. But our God is everlasting. Our God is eternal. And our God reigns in his kingdom, which is in heaven. And he wants us to be there with him. So we have to consider that Jesus is God. We have to consider. And the last thing that we see 
as we make our consideration and as we come to our conclusion is this, that Jesus is, in fact, God. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the one to come and to save us from our sins. He was prophesied about Matthew one twenty one. Listen to this. It says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Peter knew this. Peter believed it. But what we've got to realize is do we? Do our actions prove Jesus' worth in our life? Does our life reveal that we truly believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? There's a show on TV, many of you have probably heard of it. It's called The Office. It's a uh, very uplifting, great show. Everyone should watch it at least once. Actually, it's not. I don't recommend it. But with that in mind, I started watching it in college, and it is just a really quirky show. And so as most of you may know, this is the end of the whole uh, show as itself is this season. And so I was kind of uh, watching different episodes here and there, and I saw this past episode this last week. And if you uh, don't know anything about the show, what it is, it's, it's a, more of a mockumentary about an office, but it is, it's a documentary from their perspective. And so from my perspective as the audience watching it on TV, what I've witnessed is 10 years of a cameras following around this group of people filming their every move. Now, on the show, from their perspective, what's now happening is they are starting to see the trailer for what has been filmed all those years. So they see it from a completely different perspective than the audience. And so what's happening is this, as they're viewing the trailer of everything that they filmed, they've realized this. They've realized that the cameras never stopped rolling. What is being revealed is marital affairs, inappropriate relationships, other things that have taken place that are very much real life situations have been revealed from their eyes because now they are seeing it on camera. That's a scary thought to think, but the reality in all of that is this, is that there's a camera rolling on our life. God knows every thought that is going on in our head. God sees everything that has taken place in our life Whether we want to admit to it or not, he has seen it. That's a scary thought. It's pretty overwhelming. But here is the thing that we need to look at as we consider Jesus to be the Messiah, to be God, is that one day, do you realize, we're going to have to give an account to God for the documentary called Our Life. Listen to what the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5.10. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. On that day, there's going to be two types of people. 
There's going to be those who have declared that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then there are going to be those that though it may have come out of their life, they have never really meant it, their life has never displayed it, and Jesus is going to look at them and he's going to say, I never knew you. But here is what is so great about God's love. And here's what's so great. If everything is true, then what we see is that cross, that cross which Jesus bore, the cross where Jesus died, what he did on that cross is this. Because of his sacrifice, because of his love, because of his grace, if we give our lives to him, it's as if on that day, Jesus takes that documentary and he throws it away and he looks at us and he says, this one's mine. This one's mine. As we stand before the judge, our words mean nothing. The only thing that matters are our actions and the words of Christ as he tells God, I've got this one. They're okay. And the documentary that is my life is thrown aside. That's the God I want to serve. That's the God I want to live for. And that's the God we need to understand. And that's the God we need to live for. Because here's the thing. If I'm going to be very frank with you, here's the thing. We're all just banking that it's true. When it's all said and done, we're all just banking that it's true. You know what that is? That's called faith. But what I know is this. I know the facts. And I see where they weigh up, and the facts point in the direction that Jesus is God. And when it's all said and done, I want to bank it all on him rather than me. C.S. Lewis, one of the great apologetics from uh, England, he studied at Oxford University, was a, most of you probably know him for the, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Narnia series, he wrote all of those. Uh, his buddy, J.R. Token, who wrote all the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Um, this is something that C.S. Lewis wrote, and this is where we really find ourselves as we conclude today. Listen to what he said. He said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, referring to Christ, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He is either God or he is not. And that choice can only be made up by you. So let me ask you, who do you say he is?
Who do you say he is? Parents, I bet your kids can answer that for you. Husbands, I bet your wives can answer that. Wives, I bet your husbands can answer that. Coworkers, I bet that the, those who work around you can answer that question for you. Is your life a demonstration that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Or is he just a moral teacher? You have an opportunity to respond today. On the right-hand side of your bulletin, there's a little contact form as we talked about in the announcements. You know what? If God has placed it on your heart, maybe you want to talk a little bit more about what we've discussed, then what I want to encourage you to do is I want you to fill that out and slip it in the offering plate. Some of you, you know what? You may not uh, want to do that right now, but you can go online at blythewoodvillage.com and you can just put on there, you can send us an email saying, you know, God has just really been tearing up my heart and I really want to talk to somebody. Outside of the welcome desk, we have these books. They're called survival kits. Inside those books, it just kind of takes you and will help kind of further answer those questions for you. I want to encourage you, just go pick one up. Because the most important question you can ever answer is that one. And the answer to that question will determine your whole existence from here on out. So as we pray, I want you to ponder on that. And my hope and prayer is that you will react as God is reacting to you.